Welcome to the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham, and your co-host, Kevin Tofel. And we have got a whopper of a show for you today. We're going to talk about Brit Smart Locks, the $35 echo-powered Eugenie smart speaker, a crazy expensive bassinet for baby. Once again, going to warn you about devices in your smart home, scheduling your Roomba to clean your office. This is kind of cool for enterprise efforts and some tiny little bits of news. Plus, we've got a new gadget for our gadget hull of shame. And our guest this week is Daniel Cooley, who's VP of IoT at Silicon Labs. And he's going to talk about the hard problems that we need to solve for the Internet of Things to really make it big. We're also going to have a message from our sponsor, Hiko Solutions. And now let's go to another message from our sponsor. This week's sponsor is Eero. Eero makes a Wi-Fi router that uses mesh Wi-Fi to cover your entire house and to make it really easy to set up Wi-Fi in areas that may be hard to reach. So we're talking about the new second generation mesh Wi-Fi system that Eero introduced earlier this year. These contain one Eero that acts as the kind of main router and then one to two beacons. These are mesh access points that plug right into the wall. They have a nightlight. They're super cool. And all of this can be yours for $3.99 for that one Eero and the two beacons. You can also, if you have existing Eeros, you can actually buy additional beacons if you just want to extend your system. Those are $149 each. And for those of you in the far up north area, Eero now ships to Canada. So if this sounds good to you, go to Eero, E-E-R-O dot com, and you can get free shipping if you include the code STACY. And before we get back to our show, I actually wanted to tell you this story because I have one of my Eero beacons upstairs on my roof deck to power like my Sono system up there and some lights. And I got an email the other day from Eero. They were just like, by the way, we noticed that your roof Eero beacon is having some erratic performance issues. And we just wanted to get some information about it so we could find out what's going on. So I sent them back the thing saying, hey, it's outside on my roof inside a metal cabinet. So that probably explains why it's not working well. And they were like, uh, yes. <laughs> so Good rule of thumb. Don't place your routers <laughs> in a Faraday cage. Exactly. Also, apparently these are only good at temperatures below 95 degrees, which is not my roof in the summertime. So I moved that. And, you know, I just want you to know that if you buy these things, you apparently get proactive service calls when things are not working well. Yay! All right. Now back to the show. Let's start off talking about bricks. <laughs> Actually, we're going to talk about locks that turn into bricks. Yay! So Lockstate, they make locks, and they make locks, actually, that are used in Airbnb homes. So... They're professional. There should be professional grade, I guess, is what I'm thinking. But mm -hmm. they sent out an update last Monday, and we did see this, that bricked some of their locks. And so they got the software update, and then suddenly they were like, oh, I can't now connect back to the home servers for any other improvements. And what that means is then they couldn't fix the problem without either having the person uninstall the lock and send it back to them or physically sending a person to the device. 
Right. All remote access to do anything to the lock was just gone. And basically, customers of these locks could either send the lock back and it would take between 14 and 18 days for replacements. I guess maybe they could send somebody out to fix it. Um, luckily, it was only, I say only, it all de- this is all relative, of course, um, 500 customers were reportedly affected and 200 of them, those were Airbnb hosts. Um, these were all first generation 6,000i models of, of the lock. So it's not like thousands or millions of locks, but still it's, I mean, if you're using this for Airbnb and it kind of puts you out of business in a sense, right? Uh, yeah, because, <laughs> well, actually these all do still have keys, but who cares? But, that may, yeah, but that's a challenge. Yes, that is a challenge maybe in the Airbnb. Maybe you don't live, right. Maybe you don't live there. You have a rental home far, far away and you just Airbnb it. Well, now you've got to work on the logistics of getting pers- somebody the key getting the key back from them and so on. So this is actually not a new phenomenon. Back Mm -hmm. probably two years ago, I think it was, Wink, the maker of the the smart home hub, they actually had an update that broke their devices. And what happened is their certification, their DNS certification broke during a software update, so they couldn't call back to home. And what it meant, and this was a huge deal for them, and I think probably contributed to kind of some of the problems and Quirky's eventual bankruptcy, was that they had their customers send back their Wink hubs, or you could actually go in on your own you know, log Mm -hmm. into your router and change the DNS settings. Mm -hmm. But for some people, that was just too much. And so those people, Wink actually sent them a box, you packed your Wink up, and then you shipped it to them. And then you got a new one back with all of your programming. And it was a big deal. I mean, Mm -hmm. it was a big mistake on their part and really not a good thing. So two things come to mind with this story to me. One is that LockState says they can manually update the lock if they have physical access to it. So clearly, there's some communications port on the device, on the lock itself, that is not reliant upon wireless connectivity. So I wonder if in the future, some of these locks should be designed with actual customer access to that, because that would save a lot of time if you could update your own firmware, number one, but you can't do it without access to that port. Well, so here's the downside, though. Mm -hmm. Depending on where that port is, it may not be something you want on a lock because some thief could come Mm. over with their own like USB with their own firmware on it, plug it into the communication port and be like, aha, I've got you now. True. That's totally valid point. I I raise it because according to one of the reports that I read, LockState says they can manually update the lock if they have physical access to it, meaning to me, they're not swapping it out. They're updating the firmware. So that actually exists is how I'm reading that. I could be wrong. No, no, that makes sense. And that's what the Wink dudes did. So, mm. And the other thing is, you may disagree with me on this, but one of the reasons I've never looked at the type of smart lock that fit over an existing lock is I want to make sure that I've got key access and other ways to get into something, right? I've always stayed with the traditional looking type locks, which could have this type of problem as well, but then you still have the key. Yeah, exactly. Yes. And there are cases like if you're renting, then this kind of lock may be more acceptable to a landlord. Mm -hmm. But yes, I'm, I'm with you a hundred percent on the kind of deadbolt turning locks. That would be like in August or something like this. Right. Do those have key access or no? I'm trying to remember. I'm, I'm, I had an August installed, but it was like two years ago. And now I'm like, did it have a key? I can't tell you. 
I don't know. That's okay. That's we okay. Can... I'm I'm actually looking right now on their on the product site. I'm just curious. It looks like there is a key type lock. So you do have access. It's probably not the same key as you would have for your door. It might be actually because oh, 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 the August just the turns the deadbolt on the inside. I'm like I'm right, like actually right. Yeah, yeah. So you're not covering the, the lock, the key yeah, tumbler so part. Oh, so you could do an August. See? Yeah, so you could. So I could. Okay. Kevin's like, I rescind my point. I rescind my point, yes. All right. I have been corrected. Yay. Okay. That's that's I don't know why I said yay there. Sorry, Kevin. <laughs> I don't I don't secretly yearn to see you corrected. That's uh, all right. That's okay, Will I am. <laughs> Um, okay. So Anker, which makes all kinds of things. Started I, by ex googlers by the way. Really? Okay. Yes. Yes. Back in 2011 or 2012, one of the software developers from Google left and moved to uh, Shenzhen and created, uh, you say Anker, I say Anker, but you're probably right. And then another key person at Google joined him. And yeah, so they make you know, all kinds of uh, peripherals. Ba- for it was con- like batteries is the number yeah, one thing they, well, they I think started. Of- they started with smart batteries. Now they make cables and adapters and other things. But now they make something else, which is intriguing. You think it's the Eufy Genie? I think it is the Eufy Genie. It's such a strange word. But okay, they make a Eufy Genie $35 Madam A powered smart speaker. So <laughs> this was a big deal. People wrote about it a lot. But well, I found a review on CNBC and they were like, eh. 15 bucks more, just buy the Echo instead because it has slightly more capabilities. And so, I don't know. Thoughts on that, Kevin? Well, I mean, on paper, the Eufy looks and sounds good. It is slightly bigger than an Echo Dot, but as you said, it's $15 less expensive. They say that the audio driver inside delivers stronger bass and 200% more volume than the Echo Dot, which I don't know because I have not seen this yet. One of the things that jumped out at me, though, is it only has a two microphone array. And I think the dot, I want to say it uses the same seven mic array as the Echo. Oh, okay. The Eufy mm-hmm. sound, the review from CNBC said that the sound was not that great. It's mm. loud, but the sound isn't great. Gotcha. It's hollow gotcha. and lacking bass, right on par with the Echo dot. Okay. Hmm. That far field uh, mic array is actually, I just mentioned this because it's interesting, I didn't realize this, um, is powered by Synaptics, who recently bought Connexient, and it's okay, actually yeah. Connexient's product that does the the audio or the the microphone. Got it. Okay, so you can't. Oh, and the thing that they were sad about is because it is not actually an echo. You could do some things that you can do with an echo, but not others, like calling other echoes. Mm. Amazon specific services, then. Yes. So. So, so so this has the voice services behind the echo, but not every single other Amazon service. Yeah. And, you know, I don't know. I have yet to use, other than calling you that one time, Mm -hmm. I have yet to use any of my Echo calling features, including being able to call people on my Echo show, which is kind of a bummer because I I really wanted my mom to get one and she was just like, nope, Mm -hmm. no, because of privacy. So Mm -hmm. no one, I can't talk to anyone. Yeah. And I, I agree with you on that. And I can also verify because I'm looking at Amazon's page now, the Echo Dot does have seven far-field microphones. So there's a potential difference there. Got it. Okay. So that's that. Now, from the really cheap end to the really <laughs> pricey end, let us talk about Snoo because there's a review out for the Snoo. And if you're like, Stacy, bless you. No, 
This is a Not smart... Not the you. Yes. <laughs> the snoo. It is a smart sleeping bassinet for babies. You guys may remember this because it actually came out last year. I actually saw it in CES. And actually, I think I saw it again in the beta store here in Austin. So, hmm. But I don't have a baby, so I couldn't actually review it and say this twice... <laughs> So, baby, tell me, how did you sleep last night? Right. <laughs> this, and this, this has to be tough reviews. No one was willing to let me borrow a newborn, go figure, <laughs> to put in some crazy crib that comes with, you know, basically a straitjacket for your baby. Well, all right. You turn the baby into a little caterpillar. There's a little... It's a burrito! Yeah, it's a sleep suit so that the baby is, you're right, kind of like in a straitjacket. They're swaddled. But that, yeah, there you go. That's better. But... So this is a $1,200 crib. It's designed by Yves Behar and Dr. I don't know his first name. It's the guy who wrote The Happiest Baby on the Block. He, Dr. Carp, I think. And Dr. Carp. Yes. And this is an attachment parenting book. It's I read it when I was a parent. I made my child sleep in the closet. So I clearly, maybe I shouldn't. People should not lend me their newborns. Um, she's fine. She's very happy. So this bassinet, which it is only a bassinet, apparently works for this one baby that tried it. And I don't, the parent who did the review did not say if their baby was a, a good sleeper anyway, but she did say that her baby got eight hours of sleep at eight weeks old, which is uninterrupted I, sleep. Yeah. Yeah. I would pay for that. I'll be honest. <laughs> Yeah, and and that's when you talk about pay for it. We we already mentioned it's twelve hundred dollars. The thing is, it has a very limited shelf life because after about three months, in this particular parent's case, the baby was too big for it. So you're you're paying basically four hundred dollars a month for the probably the most challenging three months of any baby's life uh, and parents' life, I guess. I was going to say parents' life. And yeah, I don't know about being the teenage years, but definitely those first few months, you're dying. It's hardcore. Yeah. You would do anything, like put your baby in a closet so you could get some sleep. So yeah. there's there's a safety factor involved too, though, the, because the um, the little swaddling burrito that you put the baby in uh, keeps them on their back. They can't roll over. Right, and you don't want your baby to roll over because of the danger of SIDS. All your doctors are going right. to be like, "Hey, put your baby on your back." So this is did, nice. Did we did we actually say what how it works? No, I was just about to say that because <laughs> I was like, "Wait a second, we didn't tell them what it does." That's the best part. <laughs> so you Velcro your baby into this swaddle. I don't know if it's actually Velcro. You stick your baby into this swaddle. <laughs> and then the crib, it rocks back and forth. Not rocking like a rocker, but it goes from side to side. And then does it have sound? Does it detect when your baby's crying? Basically, it, it has sensors. Um, it has sound. There's a white noise option that you can have. And it rocks the baby when it senses that they're not sleeping. It's kind of got some smarts involved. Plus, there's an app that you can actually engage white noise, turn it on, turn it off, or turn the rocking motion on or off. So I actually kind of want this for my bed. <laughs> I think it would be amazing for adults to have a bed that does this. So sleep number, <sighs> get on that. I have a sleep number, and it doesn't do that. I know. See, when you when you kind of like, like, oh, they're having yeah. trouble sleeping. Let's, yeah. let's get I'm a 45, by the way, for you sleep number folks out there. I'm not a sleep number folk, so I don't know what that means. No number for you. Next. Next. <laughs> All right. We had a couple people ask us to talk about this. So mm. we're going to talk about this. NPR did a story on, it's a sensor developed by MIT. It's called the Super Sensor. And basically, this is a tiny sensor. You stick it someplace and it uses 
audio signals to determine what's happening in a home. So it knows it's got algorithms that say, oh, that series of noises sounds like a shower or that series of noises sounds like someone shutting the microwave door. So mm-hmm. it's really clear what's happening in the home based on sound. And it's and very small. It is. It's like, is it two by two? It's a two inch square. You yeah. just plug it right into your wall. This is really cool. We've actually talked about this many months ago, but NPR did a story that was basically like, are you guys sure you want to put all this smart stuff in your home? Because it's sharing a lot of data. And NPR is not wrong. And we've talked about this before. Like I have devices in my home that measure sound or humidity, and I can tell things like, oh, hey, my family's in the kitchen eating dinner, even though I'm not at home. Or mm-hmm. I can tell when someone's taking a shower based on like humidity readings spiking in certain rooms of my house. And people don't often think about the privacy implications of this. And that's one of the things we do on our show is we try to explain that like, hey, by the way, this data that seems innocuous can totally be used to derive what you're doing and even who you're doing it with. So let me ask you this, because I agree wholeheartedly on the whole privacy aspect. And we have talked about it many times. In your home, I assume that your family has agreed to give up their privacy to you, which is not a big deal. You're a happy family. Are you talking about privacy that goes outside beyond the home and other companies? And the reason I, it's kind of a two-pronged question. There is, are you worried about companies getting the data? And, or I guess I should say in my case, my family is not too keen on me knowing where they are and what they're doing. So they're very different. Yes. So I think they're, you're right. They're definitely two levels, right? There's the, we don't have, we as family decided, we don't want cameras inside our house that face inside Mm -hmm. the house unless we're gone. And then we position like Arlo's, we've got those fun Arlo cameras. We'll position those different places. And you know, when my parents are here, there's an echo dot in the guest room. They turn that off. Mm -hmm. They don't want that. So that's fair. And Mm -hmm. that is fair. And you know, when we have a sitter or someone like when we had, when we went out of town, we actually told the person who was in our house, I was like, Hey, by the way, there's cameras located here, here, and here because I trust her. And mm-hmm. I don't think she's going to do anything bad, but I didn't want her to be caught picking her nose on the camera or something. Right. That would be mm-hmm. not great. So there's that level. And I think there's a set of ethics that you have to have around that. Mm-hmm. And then there's the surveillance kind of internet surveillance. Mm-hmm. And I've got two worries there. One, companies are not great with using data. We actually just saw the FTC this week fine Uber for having their employees finding out who was driving where and showing people. That kind of thing is really unsettling to me. Like I am very aware that when I'm testing doorbells, when I go out at my front door wearing, you know, grungy clothes and my hair's all a mess, you know, I'm like, God, you know, if I pissed off this company and they were immature, they could like totally grab that picture off their Mm -hmm. servers and stick it on the internet. Mm -hmm. I trust them not to do that because I think other people would be like, uh, what? (laughs) (laughs) But it's something I think about. Sure. Yeah. And then that's the top that we've talked about that topic many times. It's interesting for me and my family, when we got our Nest Cam, the only way they would let me actually install it, my family that is, was to make sure I used all of the features that use their phones for location so that when they are in the house, it does not come on. And also to schedule it so that it goes on automatically after they've gone to bed and it goes off automatically before they go to bed and go downstairs and, you know, get themselves ready for the day. So they they set up, we, we worked out rules to actually implement this, you know, so there was a lot of compromise there. 
And I think that's important. I mean, you can't just start setting this stuff up and hope for the best. And I think the other thing that the story brings up that people may not be aware of is not just bad or immature actors at a company doing something stupid with your data, but there's also a lot of questions about, you know, if you can tell that there are three people who live in my home and you can tell when we take showers and you can tell that we apparently use the microwave a whole lot, that data may be valuable to someone. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and if you can tell from the sound my appliances make, maybe you can figure out what kind of appliances I have. Then you can start selling that data to others. That gets a little creepy. I think it, it should creep people out because it's surprising to them. I think it's surprising to a lot of people We think of cameras as like, ah, privacy, yuck. But we don't Mm -hmm. think about that in relation to a lot of other devices. Which is funny because we have thought about it in the past, but it seems to have gone away. Just the the smartphone itself, which has been around modern version for, you know, 10 years now. It's got a camera. It's got a microphone. uh, It's got GPS. The cellular carriers know where you are. Apps can know where you are. I mean, there's a whole treasure trove of of that, that stuff there. And yet we've kind of mostly gotten over that. I think so. And maybe that's what manufacturers are relying on with the smart home. They're like, eh, people get over it. Right. <laughs> so I don't know how to solve this. I do know that you should definitely talk to your families. And now we're going to talk about the Internet of Things expanding outside of the smart home into the city streets. This is an MIT project called Karaoke, um, and it uses toll tags on cars to basically determine where they are in the city. And the idea is you could use this for figuring out where cars are parked and understand a little bit more about traffic patterns and, you know, figure out parking options for people. Mm -hmm. So the challenge here is, again, privacy. Do you really want Mm -hmm. to know, you know, do you want anyone else to know that you parked in front of, you know, when you're at the grocery store, right? Because then you can think Mm -hmm. of all the ads you could get or... I mean, if it's if it's to help me find parking, in a sense, I'm okay with that as long as I have the ability to turn that technology on or off. Now, granted, these are like easy pass RFID type tags. So you don't turn them on or off. But, you know, if there was a an application that would work in conjunction with this that I could say, okay, I'd like to find a place to park. You may use my location to help me. Then I'm okay with that. I mean, this is just an MIT research project. So... Mm-hmm. It's worth looking at because, you know, things like parking are not just inconvenient for you as a driver, but they actually, you know, circling lots looking for parking spaces, it causes congestion in the city and it increases air pollution. So Mm -hmm. who knows? And again, this is a pilot project. This is not something you need to worry about today, but maybe tomorrow for those of you who are privacy minded. Let's go to the, to the small news bits that are kind of fun for the week. So my small news bit. Is actually like a cool little story that someone sent me about scheduling a Roomba to clean your office based on Outlook. So Fraunhofer, which is an IP licensing company, they uh, actually did the license for MP3s. So they're developing an intelligent cleaning concept for smart offices. And you basically schedule something in Outlook, and then your Roomba says, by the way go. And you can put, you put the bookings in, you can prioritize things. And then the robot's going to basically update and schedule its stuff and go wander around <laughs> hmm. vacuuming as it goes. 
So if I had that in my office environment, I think I would try and find a way to hack it so that it, I could schedule the Roomba to like drop Cheerios all over somebody's floor as a prank. <laughs> schedule it in the middle of the night and nobody would be the wiser on who did it. There you go. Yes. If you dislike your <laughs> boss, you could probably use this to screw with them. So Yay! <laughs> now, I will say they use the Roomba 650 robot vacuum cleaner in this mm-hmm demo that they're doing and not the it's a 900 model Roomba that recently was in the news because the CEO was like, Hey, maybe we could sell its mapping data Uh, to other people. Yeah. So different Roomba, not the one whose data is getting sold because you probably don't want your, maybe you do, maybe you don't want your office layout Mm -hmm. sold to third parties. I'm thinking not. Thinking not. So yeah. Super fun. We'll include a link to that in case you want to read up more on it. Kevin? Mm -hmm. I have a small bit of news I just found out yesterday. There is a new June oven model that is coming very soon. It was just announced. And for those who are not familiar, uh, the June oven is a smart oven that has Wi-Fi, has cameras, ceramic heating elements, has a touchscreen display, and basically identifies food. You just put it in and it already knows recipes for so many different types of foods and just cooks it for you. It's fantastic. And I'm pretty sure that you still have one. Yes, I do. I still love it. Right. Cooked in it last night. We both purchased our Junes. I think it was $1,500, so it's not cheap, obviously. But And unfortunately, the new June oven model is even not cheaper because it's $1,995, so another $500. But the difference is, instead of it being built in uh, as a standalone unit, and I think it's all aluminum right now, there's a built-in version with stainless steel, food-grade stainless steel, and you uh, it has venting built in as well. So you can now uh, just put it right into a wall in your kitchen. So for people who want to insert an oven in there, the June oven is now insertable if you buy this model. It's all the same size and everything else. There's no additional features. So it's still relatively small. I think I've cooked up to a five and a half pound chicken in it. So, and that Mm -hmm. was crammed in there. So this is basically a built-in version of the June. It's Mm -hmm. $500 more. And if you're building a house, this would make an excellent secondary oven. And it's not crazy. Like my two ovens in my house are Bosch ovens and they are my built-ins and they were each $1,500. Mm-hmm. So now they're yep. full size, but I'm kind of like, ah, oh, I wish I were building a house. I would totally put this in. So I honestly can't remember the last time we used our full size oven. I really can't. I use mine in addition to, I use one of mine because sometimes I'm doing two things at once. So that's just me. Mm-hmm. That's why I had double ovens put in in the first place. Gotcha. Okay, other bits, final small bits of news. Pulse, which is used to be a company called Cell Savers, has raised $25 million to switch its business model to become not just someone who comes out and repairs your cell phone or your tablet when you break it, but to deal with smart home devices when they are broken. So they will actually set up voice-activated smart home stuff. They will help repair things if they're broken or you're experiencing trouble. And This is part of an ongoing trend. The Amazon team is experimenting with their own version of the Geek Squad. The Geek Squad has its own version of the Geek Squad that does Mm -hmm. smart home installations. And I imagine we're going to see a lot more of this. Yeah, these folks, um, they repaired more than 100,000 devices so far, uh, or actually in the last year. They're all smartphones and tablets, obviously. So broken screens and whatever else might happen to those those devices. It does make sense to expand their support. Yeah, their repertoire. Because, 
I mean, if you think about it, everybody has one, maybe two smartphones. Um, maybe you have a tablet spread amongst a couple people, whatever. But a house might have, like, how many devices do you have, Stacey, that could be <laughs> that could break? Fixable. Yeah, right. <laughs> Probably about forty or fifty. Right. So by by expanding into this market, their area of the types of devices they can do. I mean, can who knows how many devices they're going to repair next year? I'd be very curious to see if people use this new service. Me too. I'll be very curious. Maybe I should get a job. Another one. So that's most of the news. We also have a gadget for our gadget hall of shame. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> we brought you the smolt a few weeks back. And now we're bringing you the sound caddy. Hmm. So the sound caddy is kind of what it sounds like. It's a Bluetooth speaker that's in the shape of a golf club. It has a, a shaft and a golf looking head on it so it looks like you could even putt with it but i wouldn't do that it's not what it's for but it plays music from your phone over bluetooth and can also recharge devices there's i guess a bit of a battery well there has to be a battery in there um but so you can connect it maybe a smartphone and you can even turn it kind of upside down and shove it into the ground while you're at the driving range or something like that but but 129 for this as a sometime not very good golfer I would go absolutely berserk if somebody brought this thing to the driving range next to me or out to a golf course. Just blaring music is not what golf is all about. It is not acceptable. So yes, I mean, you can't even clap at golf tournaments. You've got to do the quote unquote golf clap. Your camera with a shutter, they'll tell you, get it out of here. No noise. So (sighs) this feels like a gimmick that doesn't have a lot of purpose unless you're going to use it to charge but that's what those anchor slash anchor charging boxes are for right i mean i listen i've been on golf outings where we get a little raucous and noisy and whatnot so okay maybe that would be fun this would be fun for that but that's not what most of golf is about so yeah i say gimmicky so the sound caddy from there in their release discussing the product Golf is hard enough, but the sound caddy is helping lighten things up while attracting millennials and curious participants to give it a try. So this is millennials' entry into golf. What do you think, Kevin? (laughs) (laughs) All right. So that concludes this week's show. And stay tuned for a message from our sponsor, Heiko Solutions, and our guest, Daniel Cooley of Silicon Labs, who is going to talk about how we bring math to the edge how we do data models for IoT is a really awesome segment. So I hope you guys enjoy it. And thanks for playing, Kevin. Thank you. Hey, everyone. This is Stacy breaking into the Internet of Things podcast with a message from this week's sponsor. This week's sponsor is Heiko Solutions. And I have Stanislav Sustal here to talk to us about Heiko. Hey, Stanislav, how are you doing? Hi, Stacy. I'm doing good. How are you? Excellent. So, first off, remind me once again, what is it that Heiko does? We provide a full range of services for IT-related projects, mainly for U.S.-based companies. Our emphasis is IoT and what we call MDP, Mathematical Data Processing. Okay, so what is Mathematical Data Processing? By Mathematical Data Processing, we mean the application of mathematical and scientific skills to a wide range of problems. For example, MDP includes machine learning, computational geometry, or statistical and numerical mathematics, and others. The algorithms we develop allow our clients to make sense of usually overwhelming amounts of data that they have. And then it helps them to make better business decisions. 
Excellent. So you build algorithms for people. But there are a lot of platforms that provide algorithms. What makes Haiko different? Good question, Stacy. Some of these platforms indeed provide great pieces of functionality. But we should bear in mind that there is no one-size-fits-all solution when it comes to real-world cases. Standardized model can get you quick but often mediocre results. The difference is our approach is customized. We provide targeted development of mathematical models. Based on what the client requires, we can often make recommendations as to what data needs to be collected and provide it as an input to these models. Subject matter expertise is essential here, and we work closely with our clients to understand their business and their needs to develop the perfect solution. And that's where broad scientific perspective becomes important. So could you give me an example? One project that comes to mind is where the goal was to forecast price ranges of collectibles. And working together with our client, we developed a model based on the ideas from sociology and care theory. And later, we applied a similar approach in the financial industry sector. On another project, our task was to recognize specific types of motion, such as squats or weightlifting, based on motion parameters like speed and acceleration that comes from a wearable. Using this data, we developed an algorithm that determined the motion and gave the proper recommendations. And to do this, we borrowed the knowledge of aerophysics and ballistics and implemented inertial navigation system to estimate velocity and orientation with respect to a gravity vector. This sounds really cool because I am not good at building algorithms. So where can I get more information? Go to www.hiko-solutions.com. That's www.hiko-solutions.com. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham. And today's guest is Daniel Cooley, who is Senior Vice President of IoT at Silicon Labs. Hi, Daniel. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Stacey. Man, I am super excited to have you. And we are going to talk about the tough problems, the hard problems that we're not thinking about yet with the Internet of Things. You mentioned to me that there are four main things that you want to talk about. So let's hit them first, just broadly, so we know what's coming. Sure. So this is a what we're working on at the silicon level to enable in the future. So these are the things that take a long time to play out. And it's edge computing, IoT data models, human machine interfaces, and the shifting business models around IoT that impact the silicon. Awesome. And we've touched on all of these. So I'm looking forward to getting your perspective. So let's kick it off with edge computing, because I kind of feel like cloud is so yesterday. So yeah, what do you mean when you're talking about edge computing? What are kind of how do you define that first? Oh, that's a great question. So I, I don't mean kind of the fog, the IoT fog that that people may read about, uh, which is mostly centered around gateways, gateways in the home, gateways in retail, commercial, factory applications. I mean doing computations at the actual end devices in the IoT, doing math and making decisions on a door window sensor, on a power tool on a piece of equipment that's sitting out there. Because today, those devices, for all the greatness that they provide, actually don't make too many decisions. Okay, so from a silicon perspective, does this just mean like more massive power at the edge? Because there are a lot of trade-offs happening if you do that. This really comes down to things like memory, raw compute for decision-making, DSP for math, 
and even battery technology, because a lot of these use cases have battery powered devices. So any efforts they can you know, do to make better batteries is always good. Right now, what we're seeing is a, we've seen a big shift in the last few years from 8-bit to 32-bit architectures, mm-hmm. stuff that was traditionally run on 851 cores or, or you know, simpler architecture shipped to 32-bit. And that's been great for the ecosystems. But going forward, there's going to be a lot more need for DSP, computations in the math domain as well, to make better decisions around sensor fusion. And we're starting to branch into topics like machine learning at the edge so that you can, I know it's kind of out there, but it is real and it's going to happen. We're not talking about machine learning algorithms that get trained at the edge, but that get implemented out there. All right. You just brought up like a whole host of things. So let's, I'm going to say break it down a lot in the show, but let's talk about DSPs because when I think of DSPs, I do, I think, oh, math, I think cellular base stations and I think voice processing. So kind of through that out there, are we talking about building like really power efficient DSPs that are going to sit at the very edge as part of like a, an SOC or something? That's Pretty much it, actually. It's not that complicated. For the last few years, people have been making a lot of efforts on making better decisions. But that's not math, necessarily. Now people need a lot more math to make those decisions. And this could be FFTs. Wait, FFTs? Fast Fourier transforms. This could oh, be... That uh, is math. <laughs> yes. This could be voice recognition. Like, think about something like Alexa. Sitting down and you know, talk, to, talk to a door lock. How do you do that? It's battery powered. It's not plugged in anymore. This could be in the form of image recognition. This could be glass break detectors uh, running as with the, with the microphone as a sensor, not necessarily for voice, but for other things. This could be about presence detection. There's a lot of reasons people want to do more math at the most energy constrained and the most cost constrained devices. And putting a big DSP chip sitting in that system just doesn't work economically or powerful. It's not very power efficient. That's today. So in the future, we're going to make DSPs smaller and more power efficient, or are we going to do something completely different? We're just going to architect SOCs for the IoT. I'll say that most of the DSPs that you kind of brought up and you think about are in these, you know, big iron applications or or centered around, you know, strict audio. But in the future, we're going to make the right products for the IoT, just like we've done with the wireless systems and processors. We're going to do the same for math. Okay. And now let's go into machine learning, because this is something that the coolest product that came out recently to me was the Intel Movidius dongle stick. It's like a stick you plug into the edge and it's using the Movidius computer vision chips in architecture to for robotics, for other cool edge stuff. So I'm like, woo, this is not what you're talking about, though. Or is it? I mean, that's part of it. So those kind of sticks that are running are running Linux systems with gigabytes of you know, flash and RAM. And I mean, this is what in my world, this is pretty processor intensive. But the applications they're going into don't necessarily need that. That's where they're starting today. Those same kind of applications can be implemented in a much smaller architecture, a much simpler software architecture, and a much lower energy footprint. Once you kind of decide what you need, it doesn't have to be this generic Linux-based system. It can be something that kind of extends and brings the cost down so it can be adopted more widely. So that's kind of what I'm talking about here is in these IoT use cases as they come up and they really come into their full form, you'll start to see more silicon tailored towards those use cases and less, I'll call it generic architectures. Is it going to be generic in the sense of in the cloud, Microsoft and eBay and Google are looking at specifically architected chips for a certain workload. Now that's at the big fat end. When we bring that down to the IoT, are we going to be doing those same sort of custom architectures? In some cases, yeah. It's not necessarily that it's 
defined for a specific application, like a cell phone or a TV or something like that. But you look for enough commonality, and when the volume justifies it, you go out and you build a system around that. And you can think about application like lighting being one here, where there's a lot of lighting products that get shipped. I think there's about 4 billion products, physical units, that get shipped every year in lighting. And there's enough commonality across that segment that you could think about doing specific applications around lighting, building products specifically for that. And, you know, they start by just doing lighting control, and then they, you know, branch into other functions within the lighting system. Such as, like, dimming? Sensing. Sensing? Okay. Uh, sensing, relaying information. These light bulbs are plugged in, they're powered. So they'll do a lot of relaying. Uh, they can form hubs in, in these networks. So there's a lot of functions that the user can see, maybe, in terms of sensing, but there's a lot of functions that they don't see in terms of routing. So they're, they're, part, they're an integral part of a, a network in a lot of the more forward-leaning architectures that are coming into the market. And some of them are in the home, but most of them, kind of these kind of applications are outside of the home. Oh, sure. All right. And another area where I feel like we might have some custom chips and maybe some algorithms is around voice, not just using DSPs, but also in machine learning. But I could be wrong. No, you're exactly right. Voice is starting to become a very, very big element of the environment, sensing the environment, who's there, what do they need, what are they saying, identifying you as a person. There's a lot of that, you know, and this kind of starts branching into the human machine interface. Oh my gosh, you took my segue. Oh, sorry about that. (laughs) Yeah. So how you interface with electronics is changing and the electronics want to know who you are and and tailor the, the use towards you itself. So they can do this with vision. They can do this with voice. They can do this in a number of ways. Your phone already does it with fingerprints, right? Your finger, your phone knows who you are based on that. That's, that was a big step forward in human machine interface, actually. You may not think about it that way, but that's the way the engineering side, uh, the engineers are thinking about this. So, you know, the more that these electronics can tailor their application and, and their operation to the person using it, uh, it matters. And the way I think about this in my world always is like, I want to put my hand on a door lock and it knows who I am. By the time I start turning it, it's either going to unlock or not. Think about it that way. You're, you're more generous than I am. I think it should unlock or it should send a bolt of electricity. We don't <laughs> want any. Me. Or zap me, exactly. And so just the way you interface with electronics, not necessarily electronics, just products in general is changing, but you need a lot of electronics to do that. You need a lot of computation. There's a lot of privacy security needs around that. A lot of data that has to be shared at different levels in the I call it the IoT food chain. And so it's driving a lot of security needs, but it's ultimately about tailoring the product experience to the user. Human to machine interfaces, I feel like everyone's been high on voice. I love your perspective about fingerprints. But then it feels like we've gone from voice to like all of this, like you will communicate directly via telepathy. If you think of like Elon Musk and some of the Facebook efforts out there. And I feel like we've missed like a huge chunk of the middle going straight from, you know, I'm going to tell you to do something and then I'm going to think it and it will happen. So being perhaps more practical, because you have to sell actual products to like real customers. What do you think the big interfaces are going to be? Or how are you thinking about the future here? So let's start practically, because I love that, that angle here. HMI had made a, is making a big shift away from physical buttons to capacitive buttons and screens, for example. This is super practical because the performance is better and less things break if there's not a mechanical switch anymore. So it's easier to manufacture, it's easier to produce, less skews. But it doesn't really stop there. I, I think that the product companies that we're working with right now want to remove as much UI as possible. 
actually that's kind of a strange way to think about it, but they want to remove as much decision-making. And, and I think you can see that in its best use case in the, in the remote controls that are being shipped with uh, televisions or over-the-top boxes these days. You know, just recently, actually, I, I had cable service installed in, in, in a property that I own, and I haven't had cable for years, and they gave me this giant remote with like 50 buttons. Uh, and I was like, what, what do I do with this? I'm used to my single remote from Amazon. And so everybody's driving to simplify, simplify, simplify as much as possible and uh, remove as much interface as they can and really tailor the experience around what they want and not necessarily try to provide every single hook and hook and knob out there. Okay, so TVs feel almost like a bad example because you've got a screen which makes you able to do more with four buttons, right? It gives you a lot yep. of like, I was going to say mousing over, but pushing over, whatever. So when you're talking about interfaces with devices that don't have screens or voices, obviously winning, but what else is there? I'm thinking of things like haptic feedback in your car. I don't know. There's haptic feedback, there's lights. So anything visual is always bigger. Eyes are fantastic sensory, sensory objects. There's voice that comes into play, like your Alexa is, and, and all the products that are coming out around voice control. That's a huge push and, and one that's going to be big because it's the, one of the most natural things. You don't actually, you have to learn how to read, right? You don't have to learn how to speak. It just kind of happens. If you've had young kids, you've seen this as an adult. But I, I think that that's one of the big things going forward is anything that you can talk to, you probably will be able to talk to. I just came back from, you know, uh, uh, our partner meetings and there was a big push around a lot of biometric sensing. Uh, again, it's more about figuring out who you are and maybe how you're responding to the environment or to what's going on. An example is a company that was trying to or actually has implemented a lot of technology around EKG to not only identify you as a person uniquely, but if you're stressed, if you're dehydrated, if you're hungry, all of they're trying to figure out interesting ways to actually do this. And so if you want to think about that in terms of human machine interface, you can. It, they, they were selling this as being able to identify people on a factory floor. And I was like, that's scary. That's 1984 territory for me. Okay, so you brought up business models. Let's talk about that because I spend just a crazy amount of time thinking about how we're going to make this viable because you can't sell hardware anymore and support it over the life of hardware with, you know, out getting more money from people. So what does the future look like to you? What are you, what future are you building towards with kind of the question of business models? I guess the idea for me is that all products should be able to be connected to the internet. And I know that's very scary. Uh, it certainly is for me. And that idea is powerful though. And the way that people build products, the way they roll them out over time, and the way that what you expect out of them all fundamentally change. So if you're going to be able to connect them to the internet or some service, think about it that way, is pretty dramatic. I, I think it hasn't really been done before other than for cellular technology and for set-top boxes and a few of these other applications for, for the consumer side. But it's And it used to be done proprietary-wise for other applications like smart metering is a great example. Those things aren't necessarily connected to the internet, but they are connected to some service. You're certainly being transacted on how much energy you use at all times. So this idea is that this is kind of my fear of, oh my God, everything is going to become a subscription. So I will subscribe to, I don't know, my door locks or my car or you name it. I'm going to subscribe to these connected things, which is kind of cool in some ways, but what do you need to make that a reality on your end? What do we need to make it a reality? And from a technology standpoint, is it's actually not that hard. You need consistent data connectivity to that device, and you need to do it securely. Most of the other stuff's already in place. 
actually. So people can buy chips that are pretty cheap to go build a door lock. It's not the hardest thing, but getting the data in and out securely and reliably is a big problem that people are trying to solve right now. But I think that's not the hardest part. The hardest part here isn't technology. It's about convincing people to shift over to this. There's a certain generational gap. There's a certain fear gap. There's a certain you know, gap in a lot of places where people just won't rent a device as a service unless the use case is so compelling, they'll just do it. And there aren't a whole lot of those right now. So I think the market's going to take a little while to adopt it from the consumer side. On the flip of that, the industrial and commercial space, this is normal. And, you know, you have service contracts left and right in, in, in a retail environment, in a, in, a, in a business environment, in a factory environment. You already have services for security and you already have services for 100 other things. This, will be, this is being adopted a lot faster, actually, in the, in the commercial and industrial side. And that's the focus that kind of we're building for our products. And those same specs meet the consumer need uh, at the same time. So it's mostly security specs then that you're talking about on the industrial side. Yeah, there's a lot there. Secure boot, authentication, certification, key storage generation, you know, being able to to do the you know hardware crypto acceleration, all these kind of things. Those are the kind of things we're building into our chips and, and the whole industry actually is racing towards to do this right now. This is not just me. So as a average person running around out there going, wait, my God, why why do we need all this? What what's the worst case scenario if you don't have this and you have subscription based services? I think that it just won't scale. It won't take off and the volumes will never materialize to kind of propel the investment, the flywheel, if you have to think about it that way. I think that it only takes a few hacks or it only takes a few you know, family members telling you, no way, don't go do that thing, and then you wouldn't do it. That's not out of the realm of happening. I think that we're working hard to make sure that doesn't happen, but the IoT is happening in fits and starts along the way. I think in the end, the, the real use cases are pretty compelling out there and the ROI is too big to ignore. So it's just, it's not a matter of, of if, but when. It's just going to be how, how long does it take to get the security angle worked out? And it's not just about solving security. I mean, that's an enabler for everything else, really. It's not about making the most secure device. It's like without a secure device, nothing else is really going to scale. Right. Okay. Well, let's go to the biggest, I don't know if this is the biggest elephant, but it does feel like a huge elephant in the room, which is data models. First, Mm -hmm. you should talk to me about what you mean by data models, because people throw around that phrase a lot, meaning a bunch of different things. So what I mean by data models is the code running on a device that makes it that device. And if you don't have consistent data models, they're just not going to work. You know, if you take lighting, for example, and you install 20 or 10 light bulbs and you start replacing them over the years, three, four, five years down the line, they all need to work together all the time, on, off, dim, color control, if you need that there. And so it has to be processed the same way. So that that APIs, if you think about it that way, or the the definition of that light bulb in software has to be consistent. And if you're relying on 50 or 100 proprietary implementations of what that looks like, it just won't scale. It's not going to go mega. So there will be a standardization. And there already is. There's, there's a half a dozen of these things that are in play right now. And it's just going to be, there's going to be two or three in the end. So this is a big philosophical question, because I remember in the early days of the web, we were all like, open web for the win. And now once we got mobile and God, the app economy, the open web is dead. Everything's an app and even things like AMP services like that have killed it. So it feels like every business has looked at that and said, hey, you know what? We can go proprietary. We can try to push people to buy all Philips Hue light bulbs or all Cree light bulbs. 
And I know there are standards trying to make this work, but it feels like the industry is not interested in listening to what is probably good for consumers or businesses. And they might be beating themselves against this like app-defined wall for years to come. I think that part of the reason they're doing that right now is because they're looking for ways to differentiate. And that's how they differentiate today. And I just don't think that's how they're going to differentiate in five years. I don't have a, a more concrete answer than that, but I do know all these companies are looking for different ways to differentiate because they see the legacy stuff being commoditized pretty rapidly. So having a connected device enables that. You know, I, I think that defining what a light bulb looks like in software isn't what Philips is trying to do. I think they're trying to do and I'm using that as an example because you brought up the Hue, and which is one that everybody knows. And you know they're looking for other ways to differentiate, whether it's working with different ecosystems that are out there for the control element. But how you turn the light bulb on and off in software isn't so important to them. It's not where they differentiate their product. Those are the kind of companies, and it, whether it's lighting or, or anything else in the home, they're going to look for different ways to differentiate in the future that they don't have to do today. They may really want their proprietary way of doing it to be standardized. That's still yet to play out. But I think that they're going to look for other ways to differentiate in the future. And do you guys have, I guess, a dog in that hunt in the standardization effort and the data model effort? Are you trying to push the industry one way or the other on different models? Or are you just like, please, guys, settle on something? Yes, we are, actually. So there's kind of three entry points into the IoT from a technology perspective. There's the data center, the gateway, and the edge devices. And depending on where you start, you'll try to drive decisions that actually impact all the others without realizing it, or maybe you're doing it on purpose. And so data models that are birthed out of organizations that start in the cloud aren't practical to implement for a certain cost, energy, complexity, budget at the edge. Ones that are started in the gateways usually implement security requirements on edge node devices that just don't work. You can't implement certain kinds of security at a certain cost point. Again, there's a lot of, I keep saying the, the cost word because that's just a practical element to rolling this stuff out. So we push for data models that are light, that have appropriate amounts of security and trust within the IoT. And so, you know, I don't necessarily want to go into all the ones that Silicon Labs is pushing through the standards bodies right now, but we're in general shooting for lightweight models that define only what they need to define and nothing more. And then have security elements built in at the chip level. And yeah, okay. Yes, essentially. So there's bare security requirements you need for encryption, for key storage generation, for boot certifying firmware images and how you, you know, do all of that. That's a given, but that is already mostly done. And then it becomes, how do you put all these together to define what a product looks like in software? Oh my gosh. Well, I can't wait to talk to you in like three, maybe four years to see if we've actually done this because my hopes are not high, but we'll see. I think that you're going to see, you know, not one. I think there will be multiple. Ah, all right. Well, Daniel, thank you so much for coming on the show this week. Thank you for having me. That's it for this week's show. Thank you so much for listening. And if you want more IoT news, you can sign up for my newsletter, Stacy Knows Things, at stacyonIoT.com. We'll see you next week. Music.